We're going to go to the book of Exodus and get your Bibles out. Please have your Bibles open to the second chapter of Exodus. I know Rick handled all of that, but uh, I just want to be sure he got it right. So I'm going to do a little bit of review with you this morning. Uh, and, and by the way, thanks to Rick. In all seriousness, I appreciate Rick and what he does for us around here. No, I, I can appreciate that having been a senior pastor for more than 40 years. And uh, I know what he does to take pressures off Dennis, but also to serve the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. And he is the most capable guy I have ever seen. And I am thankful for him. And so maybe that will keep him from giving a rebuttal when I come back later. He comes back later. He will help out later when uh, I happen to be gone for a couple of weeks. Okay. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into this because we've got a lot to do. And hopefully I can get through what I need to this morning. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've made. Thank you for the seasons. You've said that uh, uh, out of your judgment came the promise that there would be seasons and that you would keep the seasons. And now we come into a new season and a season which also we celebrate uh, Reformation Day. And we thank you, Lord, for the heritage that we enjoy in the body of Christ. But we go all the way back to the book of Exodus for that. And we thank you for your faithfulness to, to us. And we thank you, Father, for our pastor. And we thank you for all the staff. And we thank you for the elders, the men who serve us in that way, and for our deacons who help us in so many ways. And I pray, Father, you'll bless each one of them and bless us today as we look into your word. And uh, so be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Exodus, and today we're going uh, into chapter 3, but again, we're going to do a little bit of, I'm going to pick up the last three verses of chapter 2. As we do this, I want us to remember the big picture of where we are, what we're seeing in Exodus. Why study Exodus? That's something that happened centuries ago, millennia ago. And so why is that important for us? Well, As we study the book of Exodus, we see that it is the first full template of the Christian life. We see in it that um, there is for us the whole picture of redemption, what we ourselves experience in the Christian life. Uh, What we were, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. See if you can remember the outline that I gave you, the big outline, a simple three-point outline taken from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions one and two that talk about the Christian life. Uh, it talks about what we were, and so does Exodus. What was that first word? Anybody remember? Okay, let's go back to the first lesson then. And no, uh, the first thing it talks about is misery. Man without God is hopeless and helpless. He is in misery. That's what the catechism teaches us. And then we find in Exodus, chapters 1 through 12 is picturing that for us. Our misery. Because we see Israel, God's people, in misery and in need of something. And what did God do? What does God do in the book of Exodus? You got, go get another cup of coffee or something. Here. 
Deliverance. We need deliverance. We're in misery. We cannot help ourselves. Israel could not help themselves. They needed an outside force greater than Pharaoh, Tutmosis III, I believe, who was the greatest Pharaoh of his dynasty and the most powerful man. Somebody had to come in who was bigger than Tutmosis III. So, there's misery. But we get deliverance. And what is our response to that? Ah, somebody remembers. Gratitude. Thank you, thank you. I, I think I'll come back next week. So, we got misery, deliverance, gratitude. This is the picture there. Is this not the very same picture in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, chapter 2? You were once, What? without hope and without God. And you were once dead in your trespasses and sin. You were enslaved to your sin. And what does that verse 4 say? But, but God. Favorite words of our pastor, right? But God. And so God stepped in to deliver us by His grace. That's what happens here. These people didn't deserve it. But God in His grace, who had chosen Israel, came and He redeemed them. And so, we are now, therefore, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. And, and therefore, we serve God out of gratitude. And that's what's going to happen at the end here, uh, chapters 14 to 40. You notice there's an overlap there. You say, that should not happen. That's the way outline should be. Well, the fact is, as soon as they were delivered, they were grateful. And their songs of praise, and they see what God has done. There was also a lot of complaining. Uh, so, but we don't do that here at this church, and we don't do it in this class for sure. So, uh, let's let's move ahead here. I'll have this up for you. You can take a look at it and turn it with your Bibles if you want to. But let me give you just an introduction. Um, I'm here to make you miserable. Okay. I'm help, here to help you see what bad condition we all are in. But in Exodus 2, it describes a dramatic turn of events in the life of this man named Moses. And having been delivered from a certain death as a child, this man is privileged to grow up in Pharaoh's courts. He becomes an Egyptian prince. The future looked bright, very bright for Moses. But there was also another influence of a good and godly heritage, a mom and a dad who taught their young son to be fearless, to stand alone, to walk by faith with God, and to seek his favor. How do I know that? The book of Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, Moses. Now, we probably associate that because if we do in every other instance, by faith, Moses. Okay, so here's what we're going to hear what Moses did, something Moses did. By faith, Moses, what did he do? Nothing. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. This verse is talking about his parents, not about Moses. It's talking about God's providence and God's work through a godly family, a Levite, a Levitical family. And so, hit by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy a fleeting pleasures of sin he considered this is an amazing verse to me Moses considered the reproach of Christ the Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward here no no not here what is that doing 
I should not be here. So uh, he was looking for the reward, the reward of his inheritance. Now, as he grew up, Moses sensed, as we just saw there, that God was working in his life and wanting to use him. Have you ever sensed God wanted to use you, and so you take off trying to do things? Let me do this, 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 this. You're trying to do all these things to please God and do this because you just sense God wants you to do something. Look here from the book of Acts, Stephen's speech for which he was stoned. When he was 40 years old, speaking of Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. That's Exodus 2. The children of Israel. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Surely they'll understand. I am here as the deliverer. And, and that they will bow down and they will, they will honor me and they will see that I'm, I'm the deliverer and I'm the good guy. But they did not understand. Sometimes you try to help people and they don't understand. Sometimes my wife tries to help me. I don't understand. But nevertheless, those kind of things happen. So there came a day when Moses, now 40 years old. So he's been in the palace and in his home as well for 40 years. Uh, he went to his fellow Jews, having seen the oppression, and he decided to take action and strike down one of the Egyptian taskmasters. This is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 that you saw last week. And verse 12 says that he looked this way and that way, but he failed to look the right way. Thank you, Susu. He needed to look up, not look around and see, is anybody watching? Can I, can I get away with this? I'm going to deliver these people, so i got to do it quietly, just one, one Egyptian at a time. How long do you think that's going to take? But nevertheless, that's sometimes the way we work. What was God's plan in all this? Rather than looking to God, he took matters in his own hands, which left him on the most wanted list. And when Pharaoh found out, a death sentence was issued. Chapter 2, verse 15. Moses ran fast and hard when he heard about this until he came to a well deep in the desert. There he sat down physically exhausted, emotionally drained. What a mess he had made of things. He knew, he understood he was to be the deliverer, but... What am I doing sitting here by this well in the desert? What's happened here? Here, Moses is like any of us. We try to do things. When I try to do things in my own strength, in my own way, in my own time. No, let's not wait. Let's do it right now. We find him in the middle of nowhere. What would he do now? But he found a friend there, as you saw last week. His name was Ruel also known as Jethro, two names that he has in the Scriptures. And uh, Moses had rescued Ruel's daughters from a Bedouin attack, verse 20 tells us. And when Jethro learned uh, this, he graciously took this stranger into his home, and he even gave his blessing to Moses to marry one of his daughters, Zipporah. I often wonder with a name like Sparky if he called her Zippy. You know, that might have been a good thing. But here he was living in a desert, Having made this unfortunate choice in Egypt, his life is over. Instead of being a somebody, he's a nobody. So what now? Verse 22 offers an interesting tidbit that tells us something of Moses' resignation 
to all of this in this stage of journey of his life. His wife gave birth to a son whom Moses named Gershom. Gershom literally means to drive out or to expel, a reflection really on Moses' own life. And Moses comments in verse 22, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Echoing in Moses' heart is something like this. This is not where I should be. This is not what I could have been. Alec Motier refers to these words as a sad commentary on a mission that failed. He went out on a mission for God and failed. For all practical purposes, the man's journey had reached a dead end. But God. But God. God saw a different end to all of this. Even when I, you, we fail, God remains what? Faithful. Faithful to us. He's ever ready to write a new chapter in our life story. And so that brings us to a dramatic turning point in Exodus. Uh, These next verses uh, transition to a new section and a fresh start. And again, I'm just going to go through this first section quickly. I think you probably handled verses 23 to 25 last week in chapter 2. But here's an overview. First, the people cry out. God remembers his covenant, verses 23 to 25. Then a bush burns and God appears in his glory, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then the Lord speaks and God calls his servant, verses 7 through 12. Or you could say God reveals his plan. Both those things are happening. There's a call and a revelation of God's plan. So this is where we are then. The people cry out and God remembers his covenant. Look at that guy there. Think of the Israelites. This is not an Israelite, but it is in Egypt. Can you guess what he's doing? He's making bricks, making mud bricks. This is one of the things the Israelites had to do, is make mud bricks and construct cities out of the bricks that they made, storage places for that, for their weapons. Well, as we come here, uh, the, the passage reads in verse 23a that during those many days, that is the days that Moses found himself living in the desert, something else was going on somewhere else. Between verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2 are squeezed 40 years of a man's life. And a lot happened during those many days. Not in his life. His, his life was boring No, something was happening elsewhere, big time. Notice those three points at the bottom. Pharaoh has died, okay? This is the one who had sought Moses' life, had made life miserable for the Israelites. He's dead. Hallelujah. This is good news, right? No. New leader, maybe changes in policy are in order. But isn't it strange how we put our hopes in leaders and hope for change every four years? Israel didn't get in 40 years or 400 years for that matter. This was life for them. The dreams of relief in the hearts of God's people quickly dashed because, number two, burdens continue for God's people. 
Notice verse 23b. The people of Israel groaned because of the slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. These people are despairing. I mean, listen and, and, and feel and sense their groans, their horror, their pain of everyday life. Look at that man's face. And he's not even going through as bad as what it was then because they were beaten back in Moses' day. Chapter 3, verse 9 describes the whole situation as being oppressive. That word oppress is used twice in that verse. Their world, their very souls were on the verge of collapse. The weight and the burden of it all was heavy. The pressure was nearly unbearable for them is what we get from verse 9. Nothing, not Moses, not a new king, not even time, has brought relief to God's people. The psalmist knew about such pain. If you've ever read Psalm 130, it says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord Yahweh, O Lord Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That, that man is in anguish in his sin, in his hardships. Where is God? Why has it God so, God, we're crying out to you. Where are you? Have you forgotten? Have you forsaken us? What in the world could ever make a difference? And the third thing is the people began to cry out or pray. I think some of the crying out was just crying out in agony. Others, I'm sure, because their prayers did go up to God. God heard even their cries of agony. And in verse 23, it says, Their cry of rescue came up to God. Here's what H.L. Ellison says. I like this. I think this is so true in our lives The turning to God in desperate prayer is all too often not a last hope, but a confession of no hope. I have no hope. God, help me. I have no hope. Wait a minute. God is our hope. He is our help. Well, it seems that evil has an upper hand in their world. Aren't you glad you don't live in a world where you feel like evil has the upper hand? Oh, wait, we do. We see things just crumbling around us, don't we? We feel the pressures, or you should be feeling pressures that are coming upon you and the Christian community from other communities. This was life from an earthly perspective for Israel. But here's the turning point. What about life from heaven's perspective? God is ready to take center stage here. We haven't seen a lot about God to this point. He blessed the Hebrew midwives in chapter 1, but we haven't seen a lot of other. We're about to see God step on the stage. Notice his response in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. Four verbs paint the picture in vivid colors. Never forget these words. I'm sure Rick used them last week, but don't forget these words. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. This is how God looks upon his people. He hears, he remembers, he saw, he knew. God heard. God is not indifferent to the things that we see around us either. God hears what's going on. He hears what's going on in your heart, even when you don't express it. He hears what's going on on the TV, 
on all the news channels, on all the social feeds. Here in this case, it says God heard and God remembered. What does that mean? God remembered. That we have a God who forgets? Now, I forget things. Even when people remind me, I forget things. I forgot the plug this morning. Thankfully, there was an extra one here. But halfway here, I said, oh, no. I took my hands off the steering wheel, everything. Oh, no, I forgot. But, oh, yeah, Rick will have one for me. He's my backup. So, anyway, we did have that. But I, I can remember that once, one time I got a phone call. I've probably had this several times. From someone, the first words that came over the phone as I picked, hello? First words that came back to me were, do you remember me? Don't you hate that? I hate it when somebody comes up to my face <laughs> that I have not seen. Hey, do you remember me? Uh, yeah? <laughs> Can you give me your name again? I forgot your name. They give you your name and you still don't remember. You know, I forget. This is not what it's talking about when it says God remembered. He doesn't have our same memory banks. When it says God remember, it's not a matter of recalling something long forgotten. It marks a decisive moment in which God is determined to take action. As in Genesis 8-1 when it says, And God remembered Noah. Where was Noah at the time? In a boat. With a whole world flooded. And it's like, you know, if you read that, God remembered Noah. It's like God was overdoing something else. Oh, Noah and the boat, the ark. I've got to go take care of that. No, that's, that's not. When God says he remembers something, it is important. And in this case, he remembered his covenant. That's your first appearance of the word covenant in uh, Exodus. And you're going to see it over and over. It becomes a theme in the book, as you will find out. But the covenant that he had made is Genesis 15, 13 to 18, where God had described all of this, all the suffering, the slavery, the troubles in Egypt. He described it all there, and he says that's going to happen. It's going to happen for 400 years. Well, the clock had ticked down, and it's time for God to take action. So God remembers, I know what I said, and I'm going to keep my promise. And he's ready to keep that promise. And God saw. He's carefully watching. He watches everything we, we do. Psalm 121 is a great psalm here. Don't have time for it right this minute. But the fourth thing is God knew. Did you ever notice how terse uh, the wording is there? I mean, you've got all these. Things. There's no direct object. God remembered his covenant. God knew. What did God knew? It's just a point blank. God knew. God knew all of this. He's known it all along. He's aware of it. But now's the time for the action. Now, the story seems to break away there at this critical moment. Or does it? I mean, God doesn't seem to do anything right there. As people are crying out for deliverance, where is the deliverer? Where can we find the deliverer? Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go back to Moses, the guy who failed. The guy tried to do, it, to do it his way. He listened to Frank Sinatra a lot. So a bush burns, 
God appears in glory. Here we witness a place where heaven and earth now meet at this burning bush. Dwayne Garrett says this. Listen carefully. I love this statement. God allows Moses to see the world as God sees it and asks Moses to join him in the work. I've heard, I've remembered, I've seen, I, 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 have, I, I know what's going on. Moses, now, I've got something for you. This sounds exciting. I am sure Moses is going to sink his 80-year-old teeth into this and say, yeah, let's go for it, God. Right? Oh, you read the story. Okay. So, look with me in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Sinai. And so as the the, uh, sun broke that morning on the eastern horizon, uh, Moses rose to face another day, Another monotonous day. How come I'm so far behind here? Sorry about that. This is, by the way, a picture taken from the top of Mount Sinai, Horeb. So he's there leading sheep from the fold in search of patches of pasture in the wilderness near the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula toward Horeb. Put yourself in Moses' place. Looking around, this is the view there from the top of the mountains and the area. Notice there's a lot of pasture lands here. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. We found something. Can you see that at the bottom of the picture? It's not quite bright enough for you maybe. Well, let me get a little bit closer here and let you just look at that. There. Why is that so dull on the bottom? It's it's perfect on my screen if you want to come up and see it while I'm talking. That'll be fine. But there's a lot of scrub brush, a lot of little bushes scattered all around here. Now, put yourself again in in his sandals. Uh, He's an eloquent and educated man and yet stuck in an ordinary job of shepherding sheep. Most of the time, he's just talking to himself. Who else is there to talk to except sheep? He's a proud and independent man, now working as a part of a simple family venture for his father-in-law, no less. And he's a man who's known the elegance of court life in Egypt, and yet now he's reduced to wandering on the backside of a desert. Life has lost meaning. It's lost purpose. Someone unfamiliar with the story would find this really depressing. This is no picture of... of success, at least in the eyes of the world. And, and, and you feel a measure of pity for Moses here. He's lost everything. The prime of life has even passed him by. His dream of helping people, that's only a faint memory. The man has settled into a drab routine. He has uh, resigned himself to live out his years quiet and alone out here in the desert just tending sheep. Well, but as he's walking through the sands and the scrub brush, like it is here on this picture, um, he, he comes upon a very strange sight. 
he sees one of the bushes, one of the trees, and uh, the light's hitting it funny. That almost looks like that's on fire, you know, out here in the desert, and that could that could cause some problems with the sheep. So, so let me let me take a look at what's going on here. But this is no ordinary fire, and it's going to turn out not to be a very ordinary day for him. Moses' life is about to take a sharp turn in a right direction. Look at verses two and three. Let's see if I've got that up here. Yes. And the angel of the Lord, you notice those capital letters. Whenever you see that, again, in, in your Bible, that stands for that's, uh, the expression of Yahweh, God's covenant name, though we don't know that yet. That's next week. We'll talk about that. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. Curious indeed. And if that wasn't bizarre enough, as Moses turns aside to see what is going on there, a voice comes out of the bush that's on fire. Verse 4, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. That worked pretty well. <laughs> like that. <laughs> and he said, Here I am. After more than 400 years of silence, we hear this double knock at the door Moses, Moses. It's been closed for him for 40 years of that. What does God have to say to a man who has failed? He's grown old, he's isolated himself. Here's what he has to say. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. By the way, just something to think about. I'm the God of your father. And we sometimes just put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there in the lineage. I'm wondering if he's not even talking about his own godly father under whom he had grown up. But then linking him back to all the promises of God here that had come to him. So, God reveals several things to this man. He tells him he's on holy ground. This is not just the desert. It's a place where God is. He now sees the face of God. He doesn't look on the face of God, but he says, I am the God of your father, and he is to come no closer. We always should approach God, not flippantly. <coughs> I'm sure things change radically in the mind and the heart of Moses right then when he realized this is God speaking to me. And he is reassured this is God, the God who keeps promises, the God that of his father, Hebrews chapter 11, who by faith had hid him along with his mom. So here's, here's the significance. Here is the God who made covenant with Abraham, who was told to leave everything behind and follow his God. Here is the God who renewed the covenant with Isaac, a man who had faced certain death himself at Mount Moriah, 
but trusted the God who would and did provide for deliverance and for safety, just as he had in Moses' life. Here's the God who affirmed the covenant to Jacob, a man who for years had trusted in his own wits when he should have believed the promises of God and followed the path of God, something Moses had not done. What a perfect revelation of God to this man Moses, who would be called upon to follow in the footsteps of these men, to follow, to trust, to believe all that God had said. That's what we must do as his people as well. So this unites him in fellowship with those who come before. He is now getting a grasp on the promises that God had made upon his greatness, his holiness, his faithfulness, his power to Moses in this time. And so Moses here has come in humility and in fear at the start of this. By the way, uh, I should mention something. The verse that we saw a moment ago, I am the God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is actually quoted in the New Testament by Jesus when he was talking to Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, he's the God of the living, not of the dead. And so this was a, a reference to resurrection and life after death, something Sadducees did not believe in. So we come to this third section. The Lord speaks and God calls his servant. He reveals his plan. God has a further surprise here for this old shepherd. And it was regarding the flock, and we'll see that here in these verses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. So, let's pause right here for a moment. God had heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. Okay, fine. What are you going to do about it? Now I have come down. I am here. I'm stepping in. And I'm coming in and stepping in. Notice the next words. I have come down to deliver them out of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that is a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and flowing with Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. It's flowing with everything right now. But that's all going to change. The point I want to bring out here is I've underlined the word deliver because that becomes one of the key themes here also in the book of Exodus. 26 times you're going to see that coming up. And it will talk about uh, in 19 of those times it speaks of Yahweh's deliverance. But unknown to Moses at this point, seven times it will talk about Moses bringing the deliverance. He became a... a uh, uh, as I think it was Stephen who said, as a ruler and redeemer of the people. So here, Moses is going to be asked something that's going to blow him away. So, having told him he's coming down, that he's going to take action. And by the way, this is the same words used in Genesis eleven fifteen that God came down and judged those of the Tower of Babel. He came down in Genesis eighteen five to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He is coming down now to judge the Egyptians. 
and he will send upon them signs and wonders. We call them plagues, and he will judge them for their wickedness against his people. God will always be just and set things right. So that will happen. So he says, so I'm coming down. God says, I am coming down now, and I have come down to deliver the people. Oh, Moses, one more thing. Come. Verse 10. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children, out of Egypt. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, God, could, 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 you, could you go back about 20 seconds in that conversation and repeat what you just said? Uh, um, hadn't, didn't you just say a moment ago? I, I think, Lord, it was in verse 8. I, I, the, you were, you were going to do that, not me. You, now you're telling me I'm going to do that? Yeah, that's what he did. Verse 11 marks another dramatic turn in this story. When God called out in verse 4, and Moses, he said, Moses, Moses, and the old shepherd humbly answered, Here am I, Lord. That is as it should be. It implies, I'm here at your service. Same words or similar words used by Samuel over in 1 Samuel 3. Speak, Lord, your servant's hearing. Same words used in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, where he sees God. Speak, Lord, your, your servant is here. So it should be the same thing here, right? Because the Lord speaks, and when the Lord speaks, that should be it. Am I right or wrong? Moses speaks. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? paraphrase, God, you picked the wrong guy. I, I, I can't do that. I tried that once. It doesn't work. I'm not qualified. Someone comes to us and tells us that, uh, I, I know you asked me, to. I, I'm just not up to the task. I, I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. I don't have the qualifications. I, I, I don't have the, the abilities. You know, I, I just, I don't think I fit. We often would argue with that person. Yes, you are. I can remember as a senior pastor, sometimes I go with someone, I want you to pray about something. I, ne- I need you to do this, this, this. this. And said, they said, well, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm qualified for that. And I would often say, oh, yes, you are. You're qualified, and you've got the abilities. I've seen this in you. You can do this. You can do this. Why did I say that? <laughs> Can't do that. Even Moses, I'm tempted to say, uh, he, he, he is questioning that. You know, who am I? I? I would have said to Moses, my answer to Moses at this point was, are you kidding me? You are perfect for the job. And why? Because you, you've been trained in Pharaoh's courts. So you've got all that knowledge, expertise, and, and, and you're, if it, uh, you're familiar with Egyptian protocol. And you've got connections. You can get inside the palace, okay? Um, and, and, uh, and leading people out of Egypt through the desert, oh, you've got that down. You've spent 40 years here. It's interesting that in Psalm 70, looking back, a psalmist talks about Moses. 77, Psalm 77, verse 20 it says that Moses led the flock of God through the wilderness. 
You know, that's, that's pretty amazing. He, he's very qualified. You've been preparing for this a long time, but that's not God's approach. That would be my approach. Sure, you can do this. I'll help you, but, you know, and of course never help them because you put them in the job. That's why you're giving them the job. You don't want to do it yourself. But this is not God's approach. He doesn't appeal to Moses' pride. You can do this. He doesn't want us and Moses to trust in our gifts, our strengths, our skill. He wants us to trust him, to lean on him. Better than anyone else, he knows our inadequacies. He knows mine. He knows yours. But if God calls you to something, don't be afraid to do it when you're able to do it. Now, here's another surprise in the text. There's surprises all through this. God here does not affirm Moses' qualifications or abilities or gifts. Instead, God gives Moses a promise. I promise you one thing. Verse 12. I will be with you. I will be with you. Don't you wish you had heard those words and you knew God was with you? Isn't anybody going to interrupt that conversation or my monologue there? He is with you, isn't he? I think there was a person by the name of Jesus who came and his name was Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Okay. Phil Riken writes in his commentary, if God had shown Moses that he was fully qualified for his calling, that would have led Moses to trust in his own gifts rather than in his God. The real question was not who Moses was, but who God was. For God said, I will be with you. The Exodus did not depend on the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. The Exodus did not depend upon the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. Could I say to you that this is true for each one of you? Whatever God calls you to do, to teach a class, to do some work behind the scenes, to be a deacon, to be an elder, whatever it is, think I can't do that. You're right. I'm not qualified. Well, you're right. Well, I, I don't have the ability. You're right. But God does. And whatever God calls you to do, he will enable you to do. I, I, I uh, in my, my own ministry over 40 years, uh, an honest, open admission, I, I, th- I think I began in the early years thinking uh, I got the world by the tail. But as with each passing year, I became less and less self confident some people would say oh that's that's a terrible thing no it's a good thing man god i can't do this i can't do that and and yet i saw god move me into places and in positions and working alongside of people that i would never have dreamed of working beside before notable people both in the secular world and in the religious world um, authors, uh, professors, people that I sat under, sat with, taught with, preached with. And I think, I, I would come back from some conferences and I'd say, well, 
I was a fern among the redwoods this week. <laughs> That's the way I felt. And yet, I, only God could have done all that. Taking on Exodus and, and doing this over these 12 weeks, because Levi decided to leave us, you know, for me to step in to do that uh, petrified me. Last Sunday, I was invited to another church to preach. That's why I was not here, and I was, so I was preaching elsewhere. And I'm thinking all week long, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to do this. I'm not worthy of this. And, and I, and some of that, you can almost, it can almost be a personal put down. Uh, I, and and you don't want to do that necessarily. But what you do want to do is realize that when you're not able, God is. Whatever, it, whatever task. Because it doesn't have to be spiritual things. It can be every element of your life. You know, I, we can't do this. I can't do that. God is there. You, but you must be following His will, His direction for what you're doing and doing the things that are right in your life. I think I left teaching and went to preaching, didn't I? I better stop that. you got another sermon coming anyway. So... Uh, by the way, I, in, in all of this, I think I was in good company because here's where I took my comfort from the Apostle Paul who also gripped this. Here's his struggle. He was crying out in all the pressures and the problems of ministry and he said, who is sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2.16. But within a few verses in the very next chapter, he comes out this way. Such is the confidence that we have. Paul says, I I." I I have confidence in myself. No, no. I have confidence that, that, that I have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. It is God who gives us the competence the ability to do whatever he asks us to do. Now, I will tell you that when I preached through some of this and some of these ideas years ago as a senior pastor, I had people who were retired and in their 70s and 80s who left the church to go to the mission field. God had been speaking to them and they said, no, we can't do that, we can't do that. And and over the next 15, 20 years, think of the Bruners and other people. They, they served on mission field after mission field as helpers to other missionaries. Using not their great biblical knowledge, but their skills in other areas to assist and to bring aid to the work of the kingdom of God being done. You know, some of you are sitting here. God may be saying, you, I want you to go and do this. What will you do with it? Again, I think I'm preaching. I better stop. Okay. I like Motier. Uh, I know Rick and I have talked about this. We both like Motier. Um, he said, The Lord's reaction was not to promise to make Moses adequate, somehow to transform him into someone who was up to the task, although that is what he did do as time went on. What he did promise was the sufficiency of his own presence. God 
is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Essentially, God's call and promise was a call to faith. Not to believe in yourself, but to believe in God. Moses had once believed in himself. I'm going to go, I'm going to go set things straight out there with the Egyptians. He killed one Egyptian. God says, I've got something bigger, but you've got to do it my way, in my time, and with my gifts. Otherwise, we, we want to take the glory ourselves. That's why it can't be of us. God is to get the glory for all things. So, God needed to draw Moses to himself. And he did that. That's why that was holy ground. God was there because he wanted Moses to meet with him, to see him in his glory. For being with God and having God with us is a prerequisite to any effective and fruitful service for God. Now, one final thing here. In order to confirm that God would be with Moses, the Lord gave him a sign. Oh, I love this. It's so good when God gives us a sign. Lord, I need a sign. Okay, what is it? Read this verse with me. When you have brought the people, here's your sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's the sign. What's wrong with that sign from my standpoint as a human being? What's that? I can't see it until it's already done. What good does a sign like that do? (laughs) That's a sign you gave me. Now, there's going to be more. If you want to come back next week, then I'll show you some more of this. But... This to me is is one of those strange signs. But what is it teaching Moses? Obey, follow, and you will see me at work. And you will bring them right back here. You've met me here. You're going to bring them to me to meet with me. Moses When you lead these people, lead them to me. And here's where I am. You've met me here and you come back. What an incredible sign. And it would take a huge load of faith to follow that sign, wouldn't it? Sometimes, sometimes God wants us to obey first. Before we see the blessings, I think of missionaries who served over the, in the fields for so many, many years and haven't seen the fruit at first. And then God breaks everything wide open. Some of the great missionary fathers that we have seen have had to go that route of being faithful, just being faithful, 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 and not seeing anything happen. And then all of a sudden, the fruit comes. You know, you go out and you plant grass seed, it doesn't, you don't look out the window the next day and see it. Where is it? Why hasn't it grown up yet? Even more. You don't plant an apple tree that's this big out in your yard and then say, where's the apples? I'm hungry. Okay. Buddy. Exodus. 
Yeah. And he said, I am going to provide that Savior. Exactly. Well, and, and, and we will get to that very point. Everything that we're seeing here right now is what God has done for us. Yep. But, the, but then you see, when he says in verse 10, come, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to deliver the people. That is, the, wait a minute, that's, that's well, you said in verse 8, you were going to do it. Now, why am I going to do this? <laughs> see, that's, that's, I think, the, the tension in the passage. Um, but you're right. And that's why he said, I will be with you. I'll be with you. Verse 12. Yeah, well, that's that, that is the whole issue. Is us getting out of the way? The problem with Moses was he really wanted to get out of the way. I will come back later. When, when you take care of this, I mean, he wanted to get out of the way totally because what I've just done is introduce you to the objections Moses had. This is not Moses' last word to God, nor is it God's last word to Moses. You've got to come back and hear him to go through four different things here of why he can't do it, and we'll come to the bottom line where it's basically, I don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. Send somebody else. Okay, so anyway, that's that. All right, we've got two or three minutes here. Any other questions of anything so far? Yes, sir. I appreciate comments more than I do questions. They were the no, Levites were not priests yet. Dependent upon books and social media and internet and everything else, okay? That was a different culture in which uh, verbalizing and telling stories and, and those kind of things were, was much more the vogue. It was, it was family at night. They didn't turn on the TV to watch the latest edition of, of what was well, not Lord of the Rings, but whatever the Rings is right now and stuff like that. They, they weren't watching what the latest was. Instead, they gathered around... 
They've reminisced. They've talked about God. And they, because you see deliverance in the garden. Adam and Eve. You see the story of deliverance. You see it in Noah. You saw it where people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's actually even before Noah. So they were calling upon the name of the Lord even there. Then along comes Abraham, who comes from like Iraq and, and comes on over and gives up his idols to follow this God, and God teaches him. And it goes on and on and on through Isaac and Jacob. There is a remnant that God is calling out of all those places. And yet we see Ruel, who is a priest. Okay? He is a Semite. So he's from the same tree branch, you could say, as the Jews. He's just not Jewish. So there, there's always, God never leaves himself without a witness. And so the truth had been taught through those many, many centuries. Um, but God then gave his revelation first through Moses. So probably, probably Exodus was probably the first book written and then Genesis as a, a prelude to it to give us the full story. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. So they have been taught. They have been taught that God is God. He is holy. They know the names of God. They even know the name Yahweh. They don't know the significance of the name Yahweh until next week. <laughs> okay. okay, anything else? Any other ur- urgent? You've been so kind to put up with me today, and I appreciate that. And may God bless you, and may you Bless our pastor as he preaches today. Let's, let's bow before your Father. Thank you for this time we've had. And Lord, continue to speak to us. Uh, maybe there's even some people in this class this morning that you're wanting to use here uh, in a special way. Or maybe you want to use them on some foreign field to share your name or to help support missionaries or encourage them. I don't know what your will is and I don't want to put my will on somebody else. I just simply want us... I want to be available to you and to your calling. And so bless us as we go into the next service. Use our pastor. Bless him. Encourage his heart. May he sense the presence of God with him even as he preaches. And as we hear the word of God, may we respond. And so we ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here.